Welcome back to the Forum IPLJ Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Ho. On this week's episode, IPLJ staff member Michael Rupin sits down with Jeffrey Berkowitz, a partner at Finnegan, Henderson, Farabell, Garrett, and Dunner. Their conversation touches on a variety of experiences encountered during Mr. Berkowitz's patent practice for nearly 30 years with his firm. Mr. Berkowitz discusses his international practice assisting clients, developing strategic patent portfolios, and litigating in district courts and the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Hi, this is Michael Rubin, a staff member at IPLJ. My guest today is Jeffrey Berkowitz, a partner at Finnegan. And thank you so much for being on the podcast. Um, Glad to be here as well. It's very nice. Okay, so I do have a bunch of questions I'm going to ask. And um, I guess first I'll start off with, uh, could you tell me a little bit about yourself and how did you end up getting into patent law? So I... Finished a, an, my undergraduate degree in computer science, and I, I applied to law school um, as an alternative to becoming a programmer at the time, which is really what the path that I was on. I enjoyed computers. I enjoyed the classes I took in the computer area, and I really did want to find a, another career that I could use at least some of those skills. So I applied to law school. I went to law school, and... Um, during law school, um, in my second year, I did an internship with a judge um, at what was then the United States Claims Court. It's now the United States Court of Federal Claims, Judge uh, Marion Blankhorn. And um, I had a really good experience working with the judge. I learned a lot. Um, and while I worked with her uh, during that summer, she had a number of patent cases. And I thought, well, that's in- that was interesting. And then I went back to school and finished my, my third year. And I had applied to a clerkship to work with her. And I got the clerkship. I went to work with her for a year when I was through with school. And uh, lo and behold, there were a number of patent cases um, that she had again. And to, be, to, to put it in context, these were all patent cases in this particular court. So the, uh, the judge had a number of patent cases, and uh, she had one patent case that uh, was tried while I was in the court. Um, it was a case where a company sued the United States government. So we were working on this patent case, and um, it was a lawsuit against the United States government for patent infringement. And the case involved um, these bomb loaders. Um, it was actually, it, think of like a forklift, and the forklift was uh, specially designed for loading bombs into airplanes. And uh, in this case, they were the B-52 bomber and the B-1 bomber, and you had to have a special kind of forklift for these bombs that would go into airplanes. And frankly, it, it was really, really interesting. So I got to watch all this drama unfold in the courtroom, actually, when it was being tried for a couple of weeks, um, and really learn a lot about patent law at the same time. Now, I, I have to say the story of, of why I chose to go into patents, it would be incomplete if I didn't mention the fact that my, uh, my, my girlfriend and uh, fiancé and um, later my wife 
uh, her father was a patent attorney all this time. And so uh, even during that time and before, uh, he would always like to talk to me about patents and stuff like that. So um, I, there's, there's no question that that also played uh, a role in like, going into patents. Um, and then sort of like the final link to it is um, after I worked for the judge, I had an interview um, at uh, uh, Finnegan Henderson, and uh, I really, you know, really liked uh, the culture, the atmosphere, and, and the group of attorneys um, at the time. And I really thought that it, would, uh, it was a place and an area of the law that I could really use the skills, the technical skills that I had developed, uh, spent a lot of time developing in computers, and combine it with the law. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Okay. So I guess now I'll just ask, like, tell me a little bit about what you do specifically. Okay. So my background, as I said, is in computers. Right. Right. So a lot of the work that I do involves computers in some form or another, whether or not it's uh, computer hardware, software, um, uh, you know, handsets for telephones and things that, that like that. I help companies um, secure, manage their patent portfolios um, related to their technological, you know, inventions in those areas, their, their innovations, um, as well as I help companies that uh, are asserting their patents as well as uh, defending companies when they do get sued for patent infringement. About 75 to 85% of my time is in litigation, and the rest of the time really is in the patent prosecution and management. I started really doing, uh, it's somewhat unique in that oftentimes when people in the field go into to work for firms is they really, and, and this is more the case I think today than it used to be, is they pick an area that, they, that they're going to practice in. Uh, whether or not it's they're going to help companies with their preparation and prosecution of patents or they go into litigation. Um, I was kind of fortunate in uh, my uh, timing, really, as well, in that I was able to really to do both and to continue to do both um, for almost 30 years now. Uh, so I started out learning how to draft patents, and I also started out um, working on litigations in my firm. Uh, my firm is a, a, a unique, maybe microcosm of attorneys in a way, and it really just worked well that I could do all these different things, and there really wasn't very much tension between one and the other. And that that really stemmed from really a, a principle I think that our firm still follows, which is that you know the the best prosecutors really do have experience litigating patents. And at the same time, the best litigators have experience prosecuting patents. It's, a, it's this idea that you really need to know both sides or both uh, of these different areas of practice in order to do either one or both really well. And that's why, uh, to this day, I continue to have a mixed practice like that. So I started out drafting patents for computer companies that no longer exist, mostly. Um, I wrote patent applications for the Amigo computer um, for, that was uh, developed by Commodore. 
I did uh, patent applications for Digital Equipment Corporation, another company that doesn't exist anymore. Um, I moved on over the years to do uh, applications in the telecom area as well. Uh, all this time, I was also working on various different litigations in my firm at the same time. Um, bigger companies uh, that I did portfolio work for um, have been Sun Microsystems, uh, SAP, Verizon, um, uh, BlackBerry, a number of others. Do you like one more than the other? Uh, that's a good <laughs> question. There are times, uh, there are times where um, I, I do like one more than the other. Um, they both have challenges, and I think that's really the the honestly the one of the best things about the career for me has been that. I've had to experience these different challenges in different areas. Um, and I, you also get to learn new technology. Um, honestly, you get to learn new technology a little bit more when you do preparation and prosecution work uh, versus the litigation work. Litigation work is has been more um, adversarial for the most part, of course. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, the preparation and prosecution is not. So that's the reason why I, it, yes, I, sometimes I like one, and yes, sometimes I like the other more. Um, but honestly, having the opportunity to do both the way I have has been really the best part of my career in a way, um, in that I get to really work with companies developing their innovations, understanding new technology areas for them, um, helping to strategize and develop strong patent portfolios for them, um, and at the same time, working with companies both in asserting their patents and defending. Mm -hmm. If there's like a, I only know from personal experience, but um, in times like I always think that I also have a background in computer science. And I always, one day I remember like my boss said to me, like, do you think that you would be able to handle, it was not necessarily pharmaceutical related, but somewhat on the spectrum between like computers and pharmaceuticals or anything like that do you ever think like oh i could branch i could like even expand more and more like as one moves into a different field or something like that well there are certainly some skills that you learn over time that enable you to um provide you know the support and services to clients right in different fields sure I think that might be uh, certainly the case more so in my experience um, in the litigation area than mm -hmm. necessarily in preparing and prosecuting patents. It's really, you really do, in my opinion, have to have that sort of technical background to, I think, really effectively do um, the right job for clients in, in preparing and prosecuting applications. A lot of that also comes from the fact that you have to you have to be able to communicate with inventors, right? In a science, right? Inventors, you know, aren't going to want to have to teach you, you know, some of the basics on, you know, chemistry, for example, if it's a chemical uh, related matter. Um, so I think that that's where at least mm -hmm. some of the the necessary that you need to really have that necessary background. Now, having said that, I certainly have worked on matters over the years that haven't been in my area of technical expertise. Mm -hmm. um, I worked in a number of semiconductor cases. 
I, I prepared and prosecuted semiconductor applications. I worked on some medical device applications over the years. Um, and uh, in the litigation area, I've worked on some chemical cases um, and even one pharmaceutical case at one point early on in my career. Um, uh, it, it's good experience to really see some of the other areas um, of the practice from a technical standpoint as well. Um, I should say, having said all that, my firm at the same time is really divided among technology groups. And so I'm in our um, electrical practice group, which covers things like um, electronics, obviously, semiconductor, software, computers. Um, we do most, you know, all the stuff, all the work related to um, telecom. I mean, all those different areas in my group. And we have about 100, um, I think that's about right right now, between 100 and 120 um, attorneys, professionals in that group. That's all we do in that group. Wow. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, I guess for now, I'm actually going to try to just dumb it down because I wanted to get to this to make sure it's mentioned uh, for our listeners. Um, can you describe in layman's terms what a patent is, why it can be useful in business and stuff like that? I just want to cover everything so that um, anyone listening would get the idea, if they don't know what a patent is, why get it? What's the point? Stuff like that. Sure, I can try. <laughs> um, I hope. Uh, you seem qualified. <laughs> so, you know, patents, of course, is one form of intellectual property. And um, the, the, there's a process by which you apply for patents. Um, and, but, you know, typically people talk about patents um, using analogies to things like uh, real estate, uh, deeds, and fences, and things like that. So I'm going to put it in that context, right? So uh, a patent is very similar to like a deed, right? The deed describes the property that you own, right? It, it, old deeds used to describe the property that you own by describing the perimeter of the property. Um, newer deeds, are, of course, are simply a lot a particular location, and that's the that's the area that you own. That you own, and of course, you know patents like the deeds or re to real property. They enable uh, the owner of that property to prevent people from trespassing on that property. Right. So if I own a piece of property um, and I can pe keep people off, that's what the ownership right really gives you the uh, the right to do, and that's exactly what a patent does, really. Um, and that's what patent infringement is, right? If somebody goes on your property, then they're infringing mm -hmm. your property. And that's, that's what patent infringement is about. Now, oftentimes, uh, you know, similarly, people describe patents in term, also in terms of fences around that property, right? And, and the, the goal of any real patent attorney really is to develop that fence around that property that is so strong as to prevent anybody from going on to that property um, and, and trespass and, and using the similar the same analogy um, and get away with it in a way, right? So the whole point is to, to be able to protect that property in such a way that it really is not possible for somebody to encroach on that property um, and get away with it. That is that if you have the patent, you can either stop them, right, in, in, in many instances by... Seeking an, seeking an injunction in court, 
um, and or, of course, getting money damages for them doing that because typically if somebody is, is going to be encroaching on your property, um, oftentimes you may be losing some value as the patent owner, particularly in situations where there's two competitors um, that are in a particular market. One has the patent, of course, is suing the competitor. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I guess I'll start with, um, I actually looked this up, uh, and the, comp- the, the cleaning solution, fun fact for the people listening, uh, WD-40, um, actually doesn't have a patent on their thing. Now, I could be wrong, but I believe that's the case, and they do not have a patent because uh, they don't want to let everyone know how their cleaning solution comes about, similar to the Coca-Cola formula. Um, they don't. Everyone knows what's inside it, but they don't know at what percentages and so forth. So from my understanding, that would be a trade secret, something where people are keeping, they don't want to have to disclose it completely, um, but it's something that they keep proprietary. So what would be, I want to say, the differences uh, between obtaining a patent and keeping a uh, trade secret, like pros and cons of both? Okay, so... If I got it mistaken, by the way, you could totally correct me. <laughs> uh, you're, you're, other than WD-40 being a lubricant, other than a cleaning solution, I think you said. I am completely um, off on go. that one. <laughs> there you go. So, yeah, no... Um, it, it, it's a great question in that um, oftentimes when you work with innovators, you do consider whether or not um, a particular innovation that they may bring to you and they may want to patent is really something that should be better kept secret, mm-hmm. right? Because it, there, there is a balance, as you describe, between a patent and a trade secret and that a patent requires that as part of getting the patent, you have to describe to people how to make and use your invention, right? So you have to describe that secret formula, as you, as you put it with the WD-40 example or the Coca-Cola, right? And so in certain instances, certain kinds of innovations, right, where maybe the proportions of the uh, chemicals that are being combined, right, are not easily reverse engineered, Right? In those instances, of course, it may be better to maintain whatever the innovation is as a trade secret rather than have to disclose it as part of the patenting process. Right? So that's really what the mm-hmm. difference is. Um, so patents, of course, you have to disclose it. The way to think of a patent in, in this regard is really it's a contract. Okay, You enter into a contract with the United States government, and in return for the, the right to exclude others from practicing your invention, right? Um, you have to disclose certain things to the public. Now, why are you disclo- disclosing those things to the public? It's really so that the public can build on your innovations, right? So I'm now disclosing it to other people so that they can now improve on what I developed, mm-hmm. right? So that's the contract, right? Now, trade secrets... Um, there are other aspects of trade secrets in order to maintain them as trade secrets that we, that we obviously we're not touching on now. Um, but trade secrets, of course, you don't have to disclose it, right? There's other, there's other things you need to do in order to maintain a trade secret, um, but you don't have to disclose it. And so the real key here you can hear is the, the distinction is this mm-hmm. disclosure, right? Patents require disclosures, trademarks don't. So I'll, I'll give you a simple example. 
in the software area. I said my background is in software. I'm going to give you a software example, right? So if looking at the uh, process in a computer, right, if, if looking at the output that's, for example, displayed on the screen, right, doesn't tell you precisely how you got to that process, how you got to that output, why would you want to disclose necessarily the specific methodology to get to that output, right? Uh -huh. So ideally, when you're patenting software, for example, you know, you want to describe a way of getting to that output, right? But ideally, you want to really claim it, it broad enough to cover all ways, right? On the other hand, getting back to our trade secrets, um, there, there are often processes that you don't want to reveal so your competitors won't know precisely how that operation occurs. So oftentimes some people refer to them as a, a black box type of process, right? So if, if I sell something to somebody and, you know, let's say they plug it into their system, right? There's a box, you plug it into the system, there's inputs that go in and outputs that go out, but nobody really knows the process to get to those outputs from those inputs. That's an example of a box, a process that's really in a box where you don't want to disclose that to the public. Right, so there, mm -hmm. very often there there is this discussion in developing portfolios with um, with companies in the computer and telecom area. Really, that you know maybe that's maybe that particular innovation is not something we want to disclose because we don't want competitors to understand that process. Again, it's it's this distinction between you know uh, finding a balance between disclosing. Uh, innovations, which is of course required for patents and maintaining things as a trade secret. There are other aspects to trade secrets um, that really go into uh, the requirements that you need to maintain them as in fact secret, right? Mm -hmm. So oftentimes companies say, well, I'm, I'm just maintaining this as a trade secret, but they don't actually go through the procedures, set up the procedures and maintain the procedures that may be necessary actually to protect the innovation as a trade secret. Trade secrets um, can be equally uh, valuable to companies when they in fact follow the and set up procedures to maintain the trade secrets in fact as secret. Okay, um, so I guess I should ask what's very important because I think, um, I guess a lot of people listening uh, to a listening are wondering what how do you go about when you're going about getting a patent? Is there something that they could do with their self? I know there's I know there's a patent agent you could you could go through either a lawyer or a patent agent themselves, but is there something that someone like a normal person could just go online and fill out a form and that'll be it? Or do they need to go through someone a pat a patent agent, a lawyer? What's what are the options? So you certainly don't need a lawyer. Um, and you certainly don't even need a patent agent. Inventors can apply for patents on their own, um, and it, it certainly happens where they do. Um, and there are certain requirements that have to be um, complied with. Um, they're all set forth on the um, patent office's website in terms of what you, the, the process. Um, there are certainly some forms, but mm -hmm. you also have to prepare... Um, a de detailed description and uh, claim 
and, and, and specify the invention um, at the end of the application with claims. I think really the, the, the crux of this comes, to, comes into a, a lot of people, um, scientists, developers, innovators, um, engineers, uh, they can certainly draft uh, technical descriptions and disclosures um, and, and often do, do so as part of their jobs, really, and, and pr probably most often do very, very well in those technical descriptions. However, you know, patents really are not just technical descriptions. They're really legal documents, right? And, and that's really part, that's the key, really, is that the, because they are legal documents, um, having some training um, on um, how to draft them and how to develop uh, claims that cover uh, innovations is really kind of the key. And that's where the training and expertise comes in that you mentioned that patent attorneys and agents um, gain over time. It's not something that you necessarily learn overnight uh, or anything like that. Um, having said that, I mean, there's nothing that would prevent individual inventors, of course, from applying for patents. Um, in my own experience, uh, you do see situations where uh, where individuals have applied for patents. It's it's fairly apparent as compared to professionally developed um, applications and patents uh, in the first instance. And um, oftentimes you do see uh, individual inventors, um, uh, you know, running into um, traps, if you will, um, by perhaps uh, being in some instances penny-wise and pound-foolish, if you will, uh, by not actually seeking professional assistance. It's like, I, I often use this example when I talk to um, uh, new clients sometimes, really, but not so new clients as well. But, you know, if you're having brain surgery, okay, would you go to any doctor, right? Or would you go to any engineer? Uh, you'd go to a brain surgeon, right? You'd go to somebody that would have experience in how to perform that particular procedure, right? Because it's an important procedure. And you don't want to make, you don't, certainly don't want to make mistakes. And so it, it really is something like that where, you know, you really do need to have um, a professional at least to provide some level of assistance so that in the end, you know, the product that you have is hopefully a very valuable product. Wow. Okay. Um, I guess I should ask, maybe this is just something I personally want to know or... Um, but a typical day, I'm going to just, what's a typical, typical day. typical day? Okay. So typical day, of course, after I take the dog out for his morning walk, <laughs> um, and I'm at the office, uh, it, it really does vary, um, uh, depending on the particular projects that I'm working on right mm -hmm. now, a typical day is I will spend about eight to 10 hours to, um, working on um, a number of different uh, pending litigation matters that I have right now. Mm -hmm. um, right now I have a number of, I have two cases right now that are in discovery. So there are a number of discovery disputes that we're dealing with. Um, and uh, one of the cases 
uh, in the next couple of weeks, we have uh, an exchange of claim terms for claim construction uh, that need to be done at the same time. So in more recent days, I've been spending a lot of time in analyzing the patents, analyzing the file histories for this patent, um, analyzing the claims, and identifying specific claim terms that may be useful um, in our defense of uh, our client in this particular case, or our client was sued for infringement. And so, uh, of course, we're looking for um, aspects of these claims that our client does not, in fact, perform um, in their particular um, applications. This is actually an application that's used on, on cell phones right now. Wow. Um, is there any big cases you can talk about or something that in the past that sticks out to you? Um, I've, I've had a number of really great experiences over the years. And so there, there's not one that I would necessarily say or pick out as better than the, 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 the another. Um, you went to law school. I did go to law school. <laughs> I can tell right now. <laughs> How, having said that, you know, I worked on a case that, went to trial in um, East Texas um, this past uh, spring. Um, there were a lot of challenges, and it was a very interesting case that I worked on. There were about, um, I, I think, conservatively eight accused products, four different patents, uh, various variations of these patents, uh, multiple claims in, in all, all but one of the patents, I think. Um, and, um, you know, we had a trial. Uh, we had witnesses from our client uh, that testified. We were defending our client in that case. Um, uh, and uh, the case is Intellectual Ventures versus FedEx. Uh, and so Intellectual Ventures asserted a number of patents against FedEx. Uh, and so we were defending FedEx, and we had uh, this case where we went to trial and we had experts that testified and experts on damages that testified for both sides. And there were a lot of challenges, you know, readying that case for trial, um, as well as on a daily basis during the trial. Um, and we were successful in the end in defending FedEx in that case. Um, Intellectual Ventures sought um, uh, nearly $100 million in wow. damages in the case. Um, and uh, it was a hard-fought case on both sides. And um, in the end, at the, at the end, the jury came back in favor of, um, for, of FedEx. Uh, four of the patents um, were held not infringed, and three of them were, were held invalid as well. Um, oh, wow. And, and the, the whole process really is, is really very interesting from start to finish, you know, developing the case, um, developing the defenses for the case, um, implementing those defenses, of course, um, as well as um, dealing with, you know, um, adversaries, um, attorneys on the other side, um, all good adversaries, um, really um, actually um, having uh, better adversaries in the way on the other side makes the, makes the case even more interesting because it certainly makes it more challenging. Uh -huh. And so um, that case was, stands out, of course, because of its recency as well. Um, and... Uh, uh, from that case, uh, we also challenged the patents in that case in the patent office. Mm -hmm. um, there were originally uh, five patents that were asserted in the case. Uh, four of the patents um, were 
uh, challenging the patent office using the inter-parties review process um, that began in, I guess it's maybe 2012 through the passage of the American Events Act. Um, and uh, in the patent office, we also were uh, largely successful in invalidating these patents as well. So we're now dealing with the appeals from the patent office um, and um, eventually I suspect that there will be an appeal from the district court case uh, that we won as well. Wow. A lot of appeals. <laughs> A lot of... Wow. Um, so I guess... As we're moving forward, um, I just want to switch gears a little, sure. Because um, I know a little bit that you do a lot of speaking engagements and uh, patent seminars uh, all around the world, especially in Israel. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about it. Sure, sure. So uh, my firm uh, began in, in earnest to develop a practice in Israel um, a number of years back. I don't know if it's quite ten years, maybe more at this point. Uh, there was a book written about the startup nation in Israel. Yeah. And so around the same time, it was actually somewhat before that, but um, nevertheless, around the same time, we started developing a practice in Israel, um, going to Israel regularly, speaking in Israel, of course, teaching classes in the universities in Israel, uh, taught in the law school at Haifa University for, I think it's five or six um, uh, summers uh, when, I, when I did those, those classes. Um, and uh, it, it really is a dynamic environment, um, and because of that it is, we've been very successful in developing a practice. I think there's about 150, give or take, uh, clients that we have now in Israel in all wow. different technology areas. Um, uh, most notably, we do work for um, a company by the name of Mobileye that last year was acquired by Intel for... I forget the exact 15 billions. Billion. Okay, yeah, yeah. 15 billion. Um, and a number of other autonomous vehicle companies that we've worked with there. We do a good amount of work with in the with in the cybersecurity area with companies in Israel, uh, medical device companies there. Um, really, it, it runs the gamut in terms of the technology. Um, right now, I have a case right now um, in Israel where we're um, representing a software company in Israel. Uh, that uh, in which we filed um, a 12 patent uh, infringement case against one of their competitors here in the United States. Wow, it's it's really a, a, a in terms of the speaking there is really uh, it's it's a great um, it's, it's a great place where people just want to learn. It's at least it's my experience there. I'm not saying that there aren't, of course, other places where people want to learn. It's just my experience there is, you know, we'll give a seminar, a talk, um, somebody else will arrange it and we'll be there and, 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 and talk on the various different subjects. And everybody is just eager to learn, of course. And, and that's true of most of the programs. It's just a really uh, fast-paced um, environment and really companies start and close uh, frequently. But it really is a great... Um, place to help to develop uh, companies in terms of their IP. Um, it, it's been a, a, a good, good experience. Is there anything else regarding that that you had a question about? Uh, yes. Uh, actually, uh, you written an article on the Finnegan website um, about strategies for companies 
to get the most out of their patents. Uh, and I wanted to know if you had anything like following up, what you think is, how, what are the best ways that companies can, can in effect, forward their patents, best way that they can, the best strategies for companies? Okay. So I, I, I think the, the way to look at patent strategies is uh, oftentimes when companies, um, startups maybe more so than, you know, developed companies, Oftentimes when they apply for patents, they're really just applying for patents for the sake of being able to tell people, investors, for example, and, and most particularly that they have patents, right? They don't necessarily, um, it's, it, we sometimes describe it as a check-the-box patent, right? It's just simply checking the box that they've gone through this process that they can tell investors that they have applied for patents, right? Not very much uh, further thought is necessarily given to those patents that may perhaps that they get. Um, I'm, I'm, obviously, this is not universally the case. This is just, you know, a, a, a general experience that we've seen. So really, when we talk about uh, developing patent strategies and uh, developing a portfolio with a strategic forethought, it's really looking at um, I, 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 developing patents really that really are focused on blocking competition and really adding value to the company, right? Mm -hmm. So what do we mean by that is that, you know, you can get you can get patents on a lot of different things. Um, I used to tell uh, clients that, you know, almost anything we could get a patent on, honestly. But the real question in the end is how valuable is that patent, right? And if the if the patent is easily easily designed around, for example, then obviously the patent is less valuable than the patent that is more difficult to design around. Um, this is one of the reasons why they talk about standards essential patents as being so valuable. Why? Because if they cover a standard, then if you're practicing the standard, you have to use that patent. That's why it's called a standards essential patent. It's mm -hmm. a patent essential to stand to the standard, right? So that's a that's a potentially very valuable patent because you have to practice the standard. You can't you can't design around it. Often that's another reason why, for example. Uh, patents in the, air, in the pharmaceuticals area are also typically very valuable. Now, the, the pathway to those patents is different um, in many ways from the pathway uh, to obtaining patents in other areas of technology, right? But oftentimes, pharmaceutical companies will, will file for patent applications, and over a period of time, um, um, a prospective uh, drug will go through various different trials and clinical trials, and ultimately would be approved by the FDA, hopefully. And so once it's approved by the FDA, it's, the FDA, in a way, gives that company a, a monopoly that, that, that follows the pathway of the, of the patent, right? And so, again, that patent on that drug becomes really a blocking patent. Why? Because not you, the only way to develop another drug that satisfies the FDA for administration uh, for whatever the, the condition or disease or whatever it might be um, would have to go through this FDA process, but that whatever that drug is is now protected by this patent. Mm -hmm. So it's a parallel process in a way between the patents and the FDA. Um, so th that's another example uh, like the standards of a of a blocking patent, right? So ideally, 
those kinds of patents really aren't generally available outside of standards and pharmaceuticals right. and the like, right? So when you develop a patent portfolio for a company that in, in other areas of technology, you really want to develop a portfolio. It may be one, it may be several, it may be many patents that really block the competition in the sense of there really are few ways, hopefully no ways, of designing around the patents um, to copy whatever it is the product is of the client. So that's what we really talk about when we talk about the patent strategies that we do with clients. And it's a great process where we sit down with the clients, we learn uh, uh, another important aspect of this is, is making sure that you know about the company's business, right? So that you're really looking at it, not just from the technical standpoint, but also from a business standpoint in many instances, right? Because um, oftentimes when a company develops a new product, right, uh, the developer or engineer may have, a, have one view of how that particular product adds value um, in a particular field, how its, its innovation is why the people are buying that product, right? On the other hand, the business people um, may have a very different, or marketing people, for example, may have a very different view of why customers are buying that product. Mm -hmm. One example I've, I've used in the past is an example that involves a uh, hypothetical uh, photocopy machine, mm -hmm. right? So an engineer of a photocopy machine, you ask him what's, what's great about this new photocopy machine, and he'll start telling you about how this photocopy machine, you know, has this particular kind of roller system that, I don't know, the, the, the paper feed is faster than any other photocopy machine in the market, right? On the other hand, the marketing person looking at the same photocopy machine that is out in the field uh, selling customers will tell you that the reason why this photocopy machine is selling better than other photocopy machines is because the on and off switch for this particular photocopy machine is in the front instead of in the back, which is where the competitors put the, the on off switch, right? Huh. People want to be able to get to the switch to turn it on and off. If you put it in the back, it's more difficult than if you put it in the front. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the customer facing right angle or the business angle in some respects of why that particular machine is better than the competition may be very different in many instances from the engineer's view. Uh -huh. so, so when you're developing a strategy, you know, it's, it, it really is oftentimes critical to have all the, the information so that you can develop strong patent claims in the end that really will uh, uh, block the competition, prevent them from copying your products. So more than just one factor. Exactly. To take into account. Um, we're almost out of time. So I just want to have two more questions. Just um, uh, what are some tips you would give young law students looking uh, like they're thinking about going into practicing patent law? Like maybe a... Something that helped you or uh, something to keep in mind besides for taking the class? <laughs> yeah. I, I, that's a good question in that, you know, there's a lot of different things that I, I think looking back that, that I would point to that really helped. Um, I think finding the, the right balance of um, mentors really was a big deal uh, for me. I... I, when I say balance in that, I found some mentors that were particularly difficult, I will say, 
um, <laughs> early on uh, to work with. And, and honestly, that, that I, I learned a lot working mm-hmm. the, with the more difficult mentors. Um, and uh, at the same time, I had another set of mentors that I would say were less difficult, um, but equally challenging in many ways. And so the combination really of having um, uh, and having a thick skin in a way to, to be able to work with the difficult ones um, and, and push through that really added a lot, I would say, because I can look back and I can on, on various different experiences and they all really, I benefited from all of them, both the, the ones that were the difficult ones and that I persevered through it more so perhaps than the ones that may have been less um, challenging, at least in, in that way. Um, and, and the other thing that I would say that I did was I never said no. Um, with, one, with one exception, which I will explain, I never said no to a new project when I started out. I really thought that my, my role was just to, to learn and do everything. Uh, there was one time where, where somebody asked me, uh, the, one of the name partners of my firm asked me to, to work on something, and I, I, I called him back. I remember this conversation almost, well, pretty vividly at this point even. And I said, you know, I'm not sure I have time to do this project. I'm working on all these other things, and I'm working on this, I'm working on this, I'm working on this, and, and you know, I'm just not sure I, 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 have, I have time to do that. I just don't know, but you know, I really want to do it. And so he thought about it for a little bit, and, and he said, you know, given what you've told me, probably shouldn't work on that project. And um, I, 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 I'm telling you this little anecdote because it was also the, 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 the worst one of the choices that I made in turning down a project in, in that that particular matter was to work on an appeal with uh, Don Dunner. Don Dunner is uh, one of the name partners of my firm. Um, and uh, at that time, for sure, and maybe even today, uh, he has argued more uh, patented uh, cases in front of the uh, court of uh, the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, and before that, uh, the CCPA, uh, the Court of Customs and Patent Appeals, uh, than any other attorney. And I think even back then, it was not just any other attorney; it was any other attorney and firm. So all of the attorneys in firms still didn't uh, argue at that point more cases than Don did. So why do I regret it? I never heard from Don again uh, to work on an appeal. So. Okay. Um, wow. Well, I think the one thing I just have left is that uh, I believe we're asking everyone on the podcast, um, what is your favorite piece of IP of the week? Oh. An interesting question, but book, movie... Music, the Grammys. <laughs> wow. You could even go with voice note recording because this thing has been... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't... You know, oddly enough, you know, I don't really look at the things that I interact with on a daily basis and think of it that way. Um, I don't really think of it as, well, this is a this is one better innovation that I'm dealing with than another. Um, I, I, it's just a hard call. You know, when you started saying it, yeah. <laughs> when you started saying it, you know, I, uh, 
when you started asking the question, excuse me, when you started asking the question, I was thinking, oh, I know exactly what I was going to say, which is I read a book recently, um, and I'm blanking on the title. <laughs> uh, but I read a book recently, and it was about the um, patent case that went on in the uh, turn of, I guess, the 19th. Uh, it would have been the end of the 1800s, early 1900s now. Um, it was a dispute between uh, Westinghouse and Edison. Um, and uh, when you asked the question, I was thinking, oh, I'm going to tell him this, about this book right away. <laughs> it was a great uh, book. Uh, I really appreciated the book. And it was a telling about the intrigue and, and some personal um, views, et cetera, from the angle of, the attorney that was representing Westinghouse um, in his challenges with Edison. Edison had the patents, um, and it was um, a dispute over um, uh, AC, of course, and DC, and and ultimately um, uh, the AC technology from Tesla um, is what um, Nicholas Tesla um, yeah, yeah. ultimately is what uh, prevailed in that dispute but it went on for a couple of years or so and the book is really a great read um there aren't a lot of patent books out there so um one of our niche market um for for uh the benefit of your listeners uh one of my partners james barney wrote a couple of books on patents as well um and they're also pretty good reads i i enjoyed them at least um in the patent area as well so um you know there aren't a lot that uh, uh, really tell stories about that involve patents, um, novels like that, and so I, I really I really enjoyed that. Um, other than that, I can't really come up with any IP of the week for you. That was Sorry perfect. That. No, that's perfect. That's perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming and coming on the podcast. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, take care. <laughs> The Forum Intellectual Property, Media and Entertainment Law Journal is a publication staffed by the students of Fordham Law School. Our faculty moderator is Mark Parrison. Our Volume 29 Editor-in-Chief is Jeffrey Greenwood. Our Managing Editor is Michael Rivera. A special thank you to IPLJ staffer Michael Rubin and his guest Jeffrey Berkowitz for making this episode possible. You can follow us at our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Fordham IPLJ. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. You can also visit our website at forumiplj.org for daily content. I'm your online editor, Patrick Ho. Thank you for listening and see you next week.